like the first time you told me that story, I was like, man, I really need to tell him that it falls into this like pattern of like supernatural sort of storytelling. So the narrator, the person telling these stories is essentially on the witness stand and they're trying to prove to everyone else who might be listening that they are an authority on what happened to them. And so in order to sort of create that foundational basis of like reason, they have to structure their story in a very specific way. Gold certificates and Yamashita's gold weren't the only treasures we were chasing down here on the Penny Royal. While researching Pulaski County's folklore and interviewing some of the old-timers, we heard story after story that Jesse James and his brother Frank hid caches of gold and silver around Somerset and in the surrounding countryside. Most historians believe that Jesse James and his gang were conventional train robbers and outlaws that built up their legend into what we think of romantically as the Old West. But there are others who believe, and justifiably, that Jesse and Frank James were members of a secret Confederate brotherhood and that they spent a great deal of time in Pulaski County, Kentucky, maintaining multiple hideouts and homesteads. There's good evidence that they even traveled further east into the Appalachian Mountains to seek refuge and kinship. Many of you will remember Josh Van Hook, former Marine and owner of Kentucky Adventure Group from season one of Penny Royal. Not only is he an outdoor guide and adventurer, but he is also a collector of local folklore and has conducted a great deal of research into the stories of Jesse and Frank James in Pulaski County. Robert James was the father to Jesse James. He was married to Zarelda Cole. They met at a university in Missouri. Uh, Robert was uh, going there, and so was Zarelda. And they got married, they uh, moved back to Kentucky, and then they moved back to Missouri so he could teach at the university. And then uh, they had Jesse and Frank and Mary and all his siblings. Uh, Frank was older, and he was in the Confederate uh, guerrilla fighting. So when I looked into that, I couldn't ever find that he actually deployed with the Mississippi. Uh, it was either the Mississippi 18th or some shit like that was the regiment they were, like, connected to. So basically, this is how it worked. If you were fucking, you know, pigeon-toed, drunk country boy, and I was a Confederate captain, I'd say, if you go out there and you fucking bust up this train tonight as it comes through, you can have 10% of whatever's on the fucking last break. That's basically what the guerrilla fighters were. That's essentially what guerrilla fighters are. Frank gets into this guerrilla group. They're busting trains and boats on the river and stuff coming through, right? And then he gets Jesse in with him and shit. And then uh, once uh, the Confederate army is disbanded and it goes back to the Union and 
during the Reconstruction era, uh, they took the skills they used in guerrilla warfare and guerrilla fighting and used it on trains and, and, you know, banks and stuff. And there was a major stagecoach line that ran from uh, northwestern Kentucky to southwestern uh, Kentucky is what's documented. Now, surely that fucking stagecoach would have found the route between the two plateaus that meet and came east, obviously, as a fucking stagecoach. They they get this stagecoach a lot, right, over running towards Bowling Green, Russellville and shit. And they hit it plenty of times, right? And they finally start bringing men riding shotgun and some armed guys to hold them off. So they keep, they move on towards the east. And the last things documented is them going into Hopkinsville. And Jesse thought he knew a guy that had fucked him over during the gorilla days. And so he shot him. It wasn't that dude. Uh, later confirmed by some kind of watch or something that they found on, uh, found on Jesse that belonged to that guy. And then we find him more east, which is the last documented place that I found that's publicly without like an extreme amount of digging, uh, was Bardstown. He was sitting in a restaurant with Frank and they were uh, having him a cup of coffee or whatever, you know, eating a fucking biscuit. And uh, this guy stands, comes in, bars, busts through the door, you know, boom, slams down a newspaper. Jesse James just robbed a bank in Iowa. Jesse stands up. The hell I fucking did. I'm right here. Takes his knife out, scratches it into a window pane in the restaurant and says, now, if they come looking for me, that's proof that I was here when you walked in with that news article, you know, covering his ass and shit. Don't know if he did it or not. It was never confirmed, but that window pane was later on taken from the building when it was being demolished and put in the Jesse James Museum in Florida. Why in Florida? I don't fucking know. But, so... That's the last recorded documents of how far east he came. Now, I started looking into like the research we did on Somerset and the Rivertown, Little Queen City and everything back in the 1800s and stuff. Like, this is your connection point from Knoxville and Cincinnati, right? Cincinnati was a union hub at the time. Knoxville was a Confederate hub, okay? So you have a battleground, Mill Springs, whatever. You have a junction here during that time. You have energy being deposited and taken out of a place at that time and if you got two outlaws the two most notable outlaws in the west in this technically the east at this time jesse james is going to come through this area right trains running up and down here 24 7 pushing supplies cotton to the north you know fucking money to the south like that's how it worked so you obviously they're going to come over here josh and i discussed the possibility that Jesse James's hideout could be in Nancy, Kentucky, near the area where the Hayes family ran the Beckett Hotel a century later. Which leads me to the rumors that I've heard in my life, in my childhood, that, you know, Jesse James had been out in Mount Victory and stuff and stashed, you know, treasures in caves, and, and he even had a hideout out towards Campground Road. And you could still see the chimney stack from the old cabin today. Until recently, when you drove by there, you could see the fucking chimney stack right there on 1247. Right before you get the campground road on the right. Right after the church. Like, it was there. So, to say the rumors aren't true, that's bullshit. Because, obviously, there's some type of proof. You know, you can't say it's not true when you have a little bit of proof of a lead. Now, the point for me is to dig into that. Like, where's my roots at with this story and where do I follow horse tracks to the fucking mud where it rains every three days? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's difficult, but that's where I'm at. 
It has often been alleged that Jesse James was a Freemason and also a member of an organization known as the Knights of the Golden Circle. According to the Texas State Historical Association, the Knights of the Golden Circle, also known as the KGC, was a secretive organization created in 1854 to establish a pro-slavery empire encompassing the southern U.S., the West Indies, greater Mexico, and parts of Central America. This southern empire would be more than 2,400 miles in diameter, creating a golden circle centered on Havana, Cuba. The KGC leadership believed their empire would have a monopoly on the world's supply of tobacco, cotton, and sugar, while preserving southern Christian values and maintaining slavery as a necessary and essential means of production. George W.L. Bickley, Virginia-born doctor and adventurer, was one of the main founders of the KGC, which originated, of all places, in Lexington, Kentucky, on July the 4th, 1854. Like other secretive societies, the KGC practiced elaborate rituals with codes, signs, and passwords. Knights were grouped into three divisions, military, financial, and political. Rumors persist that many famous figures from the Civil War, including John Wilkes Booth and Jesse James, belonged to or were influenced by the KGC. And many historians and treasure hunters are certain that the KGC buried millions of dollars of gold and silver across the southeastern United States, where the money remained under KGC guard until the present day. Many of these caches would now be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and in some cases, billions of dollars. And at least one of these caches is believed to be in Pulaski County, Kentucky. You might know William Quantrill, the Quantrill Raiders. He was the uh, leader of the guerrilla gang, the Quantrill Raiders, that did a lot of like train busting and everything along the Missouri line during the Civil War. Uh, the reason I kind of put all this together was because Quantrill was not just part of the KGC, he was also a Freemason. And I found out that a lot of these KGC members were Freemasons. So in the middle of the Civil War, uh, all these members of the Masonry Lodges and the KGC, they not only were Southern sympathizers, Confederate generals, they were also Union generals, senators, and all of these people conspiring to start the KGC, which was a supposed to be a slave state that ranged south of the Mason-Dixon, and this was going to be like a whole new state, and their whole goal was that if the South didn't win the war, that after they stashed enough gold, they would have enough to start another war and claim the freedoms that they wanted on their own. Another thing I ran across that really interested me, when I started looking at the pennants and the symbols and everything, they have this thing called a veil, and it's a template of how to bury treasure. It was like members of the KGC would have this, and so it was claimed that, you know, Jesse James, Bloody Bill Anderson, and Frank James were all members of the KGC, but they were, you know, like bigwigs. They were just basically the pissons of the fleet. And they were the ones that were supposed to stash the gold and stuff like that. And even in the secret organization of the KGC, 
not everybody knew where the stash was. You had to have a template in order to read where to put it. And so that's why I sent you those pictures. And you can see if you arrange them north to south from corner to corner, they have all kinds of symbols in them and stuff, right? And the five outer squares are stashes. And then there's one giant square in the center of the template. And that's supposed to be where the big stash is. There's also circles and stuff around it where you can stash things. And so in order to find that, you have to know how to align these and check all the places that are on the template. Like once you put it over a map. One of the really weird coincidences is, is that there's these symbols on there that they call turkey tracks. It's the fucking same symbol that they were talking about in Hellier. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the three-toed footprint. Okay, yeah. I looked that up and I was trying to figure out what this symbol was, and the oldest form of it that I could find was that it was a Celtic rune called Elk Sedge, and it's a protection rune cast by shaman. When you start digging further and further into the KGC and the Freemasons also Somebody else that took the cross from the Templars and put it on their badge was the KKK. All this stuff is aligned with wizards and like high order magic. When you take that symbol and you place it in a place, as long as the wizard or the high mage has the power to do so, they can create a a deterrent, like a protection spell to protect treasures or anything. It's not just boxes buried in the dirt, right? Like, a lot of this supposed gold and stuff that they had was in giant underground vaults with fucking, like, heavy-duty iron and steel doors. And above cliffs and cave, or underneath cliff and cave entrances is where, like, a lot of whatever, what has been found of KGC gold has been on cliff sides. So, when I think of that, you think of, like, northern Arkansas... Uh, southeastern Missouri, the Shawnee National Forest, the Daniel Boone National Forest, all of the Appalachia down into Georgia. All that's got the perfect cliff sides with caves to stash gold in. People that hunt for Jesse James specifically, his lost treasures, they search these cliffside areas and look underneath cliffs that like lead into caves and stuff. You have to look for like scribes on stones and things like that to align the template. Some of the templates that have been found or the scribes that have been found above caves specifically has been turkey tracks, the elk sedge. My mother's father, George Tackett, was a treasure hunter. He was an alcoholic too, and often returned home from his treasure hunting forays with wild stories and strange encounters that he blathered on about late into the night. Always one step closer to solving the puzzle, always one step closer to finding the treasure he was seeking, often to the detriment of our family and its livelihood. He looked for the KGC gold and silver caches, and he climbed all over eastern Kentucky and the Appalachian Mountains, deep into caves and hollers, looking for the lost silver mine of Jonathan Swift. This was his true obsession. This and drinking 
The familial similarities have always worried my mother, and me too, now that I find myself on a similar path. Swift's Lost Silvermine is an old Appalachian folktale, based part in truth and part in myth. As the story is told, Jonathan Swift was an English gentleman and grifter that arrived in the infant American colonies sometime before 1760, who claimed he found a massive vein of silver ore in the Appalachian region. The exact location was never disclosed, and Swift's story often changed. Sometimes the mine was located in Kentucky, sometimes in Virginia. Other times, he said it was in eastern Tennessee. According to the August 1997 edition of Lost Treasure magazine, a man found a large cache of silver coins in a cave between Jesse and Grassy Gap on Pine Mountain, just west of the breaks of the Sandy River near Elkhorn City, Kentucky, in 1992. Each of the coins, which appeared to be minted as a mixture of Spanish coins and English coins, carried dates before 1760. Some reports indicate that as many as 1,500 coins were found in this one cache. Jonathan Swift's journals mentioned that he built a silver smelter on the headwaters of the Sandy River, which would fit the Elkhorn Creek area near Elkhorn City, Kentucky, in Brake's Interstate Park. Other legends play into these locations as well, including a secret silver mine somewhere in the gorges of Brake's Interstate Park. It is said that a carving of the cornstalk is visible at the cave where the cache of silver coins were discovered, and that Shawnee Chief Cornstalk claimed to have assisted Swift in his silver mining in eastern Kentucky. There are also stories that Swift hid the cache of silver coins in a cave in Jellicoe, Tennessee, which is south of Pine Mountain. Many have searched that region but failed to recover any silver coins. My grandfather, though, believed these stories were wrong because there's another Jellicoe in McGoffin County, Kentucky, deep in the Appalachian Mountains, only a few miles from where I grew up. And there are local stories and folklore that this is the actual Jellicoe, where the cave is located in which Swift hid his silver coins. And true enough, the Jellicoe area that I grew up near is pockmarked with caves and arches and a strange rock formation known as Tea Kettle Rock. This massive structure with a rocky spout stretching out into the sky above supposedly points to the location of the cave. George Tackett, my grandfather, spent his life scouring these caves in Jellicoe until they were later flooded by the Army Corps of Engineers to form the nearby Cave Run Lake. There's no proof that a Jonathan Swift was ever in Kentucky or that he mined any silver or even existed, but that didn't stop my grandfather from searching for it until his untimely death after falling into a frozen river and developing pneumonia that killed him. It's this personal folklore and history that haunts me. Am I like my grandfather? Am I searching for something that doesn't exist? A friend of ours, Delaney Bowers, is a folklorist and the editor of Kentucky Folklife magazine. Because folklore was such a significant part of the Penny Roll Project and our investigation in general, we wanted to know how an actual folklorist would approach the stories we were encountering and the theories that we were developing as a result of looking at people in place, specifically these people in this place. And we wanted to know if we'd crossed a line in our study of the local folklore here on the Penny Royal by becoming a part of the story. 
I'm Delaney Bowers, and I'm an applied folklorist living in Somerset, Kentucky. I'm also the managing editor for Kentucky Folklife Digital Magazine. So I think sort of maybe to take a step back to maybe like help define folklore, um, there's a folklorist, Jan Brunvand, who talked about like the five key characteristics of what makes something folklore. So the first one is that it's anonymous, right? So um, one way to sort of put this into context is like, a friend of a friend. So, like, you don't know where this source was created. You don't know who told, like, the first iteration of it. Like, a friend of a friend. Or I know someone who's, like, brother's, sister's boyfriend told me this. F-O-A-F, we call them fofs in folklore. <laughs> um, the second sort of marker is that it either falls into the oral, customary, or material categories. And so when we think of um, oral folklore, we're thinking of like folk tales that we tell, that sort of like standard idea, like the ballads that are being sung. Customary is usually like rites, rituals, superstitions, holidays, gestures, like all of those things are sort of encompassed by customary folklore. And then um, material folklore is like physical objects. So like the dress that you wear, like your costuming. Um, It can talk about vernacular architecture, so like housing styles. Really, sort of any type of folk art falls into that as well. The third is that it's like traditional in transmission, so sort of in contrast to mass media, which is sort of like going off on all of these different platforms. It's usually shared in intimate sort of spaces, right? It's sort of formulaic. There's like an entry point and an exit point and you know sort of all the things that go in the middle follow some sort of structure and then finally there are different variants of this piece right so I mean it doesn't one piece of folklore doesn't have to check all five of those boxes but it's sort of like in the field itself there's like a very sort of specific idea of what constitutes as folklore. So we know that folklore itself has been around since, you know, the beginning of time. The field of folklore studies is actually relatively new, and it can be divided up into um, the European sort of history and then the North American history. So looking at European studies, we're going all the way back to the beginning of the 19th century, where you have um, folklorists or sort of these urban intellectuals who were gathering together folk tales that were being told by rural peasants. The idea that they were like sort of uneducated, illiterate, that these people weren't creators in and of themselves, but they were carriers of tradition. And so at this time, again, going back to the idea of cultural evolution of societies moving from savage to barbaric to civilized, folklorists wanted to capture as much as they could. They wanted to capture these remnants or vestiges that might be lost to time. What was happening is that like that was a very deeply flawed way of looking at things and this idea that industrialization or urbanization could somehow cause the decline of man is just, you know, Uh, maybe on par for the course at that time. But in 1846, uh, there was an Englishman named William Toms. He was an antiquary, and he actually coined the term folklore. And so again, we're thinking of the folk specifically as the rural common class, and lore 
specifically referred to oral or verbal traditions, the stories that they were telling, the songs that they were singing. Folklore actually sort of replaced the term popular antiquities at the time. Across the pond, in about 1888, there was the founding of the American Folklore Society. Um, At the same time, the Journal of American Folklore, which is still a a popular publication, a very well-respected publication today. And so that was founded by a man named William Wells Newell. And at this time, there were two sort of strands of folklorists. You had your literary folklorists who were text-based. And so again, they were focused on tales and songs and the rural population, rural European population. And you could think of someone like Child who was collecting these child ballads at the time. And then on the other hand, you had um, anthropology folklorists who were doing sort of ethnography and sort of a hands-on work. And there was an emphasis on actually going to these new communities or of thinking of like Native Americans. You were talking about African Americans, also maybe like um, Hispanic communities, right? And gathering their lore. So you're not just focused on white people at this time, but sort of all of these ethnicities that were coming into the United States at that time and, and gathering up their lore as well. In the 1930s, there was sort of a shift away from text-based collections and actually an emphasis on doing field work. So it wasn't just necessarily putting things in archives, but rather going out into the field, conducting interviews, recording on reel-to-reels or taking photographs, right? Sort of, you can think of the WPA or the Federal Writers Project during that time. Someone like Zora Neale Hurston, right, who was doing that type of work and really just um, publishing as much as possible. In the 1960s, there is a, a folklorist named Don Yoder, who his emphasis, his focus was on Anabaptist communities in Pennsylvania. And so he had deep ties to um, like a, his Dutch heritage. He actually took the term, I think it was folk leaf, which is translated into folk life. And so that is encompassing of all expressions of traditional culture. And so we're thinking of folklore again as oral, customary, or material. And that's sort of where that push came from. So in the 1970s, again, there was this performance turn. So no longer were the people who were telling these stories, they were no longer anonymous, but rather they were being given credit where credit was due. And so there was an emphasis on folklore as a process. There was this idea that the performer was always sort of interacting with their audience. There was a specific context and opening and ending to any sort of performance and that there were rules to this engagement and thinking of the performer using like tone and gestures and intonations and their clothing, like all of these things, again, sort of a hard look at who this storyteller, who this performer tradition bearer was. So. And, and, and we're looking at it more like the aggregate weight of all of these stories means something, mm-hmm. right? But from a folklore perspective, mm-hmm. uh, you're not trying to put, put, put a box to put it into. Right, you're sort of not... Um, creating a a hard boundary, right? There's a little bit more flexibility um, in doing that. And so folklorists have the tendency to sort of eschew grand theory, um, making these sort of broad scope sweeping statements about 
um, humanity just based on sort of like one analysis of one thing. Instead, folklorists are working directly with um, tradition bearers or individuals or communities, right? And so any sort of analysis or conclusion that they can draw based on the field work that they conducted is really just sort of inherent to that community. You can pull out patterns that might sort of be reflective of other field work that's been done, but you want to be really careful about, again, sort of essentializing or generalizing your your findings. Um, so when we think about folk belief or just maybe belief in general, we're making the distinction between belief and knowledge. And so when we think of belief, there are sort of some key characteristics that we can use as guideposts along the way. And so there um, are certain folklorists who sort of posit belief as um, non-consensual. So that's the idea that there's variability um, or disputability um, within claims or certain realms, right? So this idea that you could argue something against this belief. There's also this idea that it relies heavily on gathering from sort of like personal experience. So you're not sort of deeply rooted in fact or sort of like empirically driven data. It's just based on like my personal experience that I can share with you. And then it's sort of also held with varying degrees of certitude as well. So just thinking of like, thinking of it as like flexible and variable and shifting based on the information that you're getting. So again, in contrast to knowledge, which we sort of think of as like a scientific standard or something that can be proven. You're creating some sense of doubt, right? right for it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like it could be true, but mm-hmm. there's no way to prove it. Right, true. right. And that's sort of the whole crux of like the supernatural, right? Like we are so driven for things that can be replicated very easily. <laughs> Something that you want proof or evidence. And that's by its very nature, the supernatural can't, it's it's beyond our expectations. It's beyond provability. <laughs> and so it's just sort of those like singular moments in time. And it's, I don't know, it makes it difficult again to sort of to prove that it happened unless there are other witnesses, and but who's to say, you know. Yeah, I mean, just to think that, like, jokingly, that, like, I, I have bras that have lasted longer than the Confederacy, you know? It's just yeah. this, like, you know, and it's just, it's so wild to think that this sort of four to five year period of time is is something that people still cling to and they hold to it and they base their entire identity off of that, you know? And I think of how Kentucky in its sort of position within the Civil War was like neutral and then it had, you know, it was like shifting and it was would lean one way and then it would lean the other way. And, you know, people claim that as their heritage and it's like, I don't, that's not how that works, you know? In Dread of Elder Titles, John Haywood and the Occult Origins of the Confederacy, an essay written by Charles Wallace Jr., Wallace attempts to uncover and explain the dark history and motivations of John Haywood. Haywood was a historian and former Tennessee Supreme Court judge who provided the historical foundation for the creation of the Confederacy. 
Haywood published his apocalyptic Southern history, The Christian Advocate, in 1819, which argued for the violent and forceful removal of Native Americans from Southern lands and provided white Southerners with legal justifications and title claims to tribal land. Haywood's work convinced Southerners that the land in the southeastern and southwestern U.S. were in fact white ancestral lands, despite Native American tribes having lived on those lands for centuries. And it was Andrew Jackson who used Haywood's The Christian Advocate to convince white Southerners that Native American tribes were the armies of Gog and Magog mentioned in the Book of Revelation, and that ancestors of the Native Americans massacred the white mound builders who lived in the South in the not-so-distant past. Jackson also gave speeches that claimed that Native Americans were indiscriminately destroying white Christian plantations on the frontier and the territories of Mississippi and Alabama. Haywood used his position on the Tennessee Supreme Court to construct new property laws that allowed white Southerners and plantation owners to claim ownership over land already occupied by Native American tribes by providing plantation owners with the jurisprudence to not dread violating elder titles or fear some future judge ruling that they did not have right to their land. Of course, these plantation owners and Southern Confederates could rest easy knowing that they were removing demonic Indian murderers and thereby restoring civilization to a wicked wilderness. They were building a new Jerusalem, a new Southern Jerusalem, guided by the hand of God. And 200 years later, not much has changed. I spoke to Sir Phil Stevenson again, specifically about his research regarding Haywood, giants, and the underlying ancestral racism of the Confederacy. It was, yeah, it was big and, um, you know, across the whole East and then in the South. And the uh, the father of Tennessee history is a guy named John Haywood, who is actually someone you'll find referenced all the time for those second and third hand stories of giant skeletons. But he was a very active myth maker in that and uh, really pushed that idea. You know, the, the North Carolina frontier in Tennessee was extremely violent. And uh, he even you know, inserted a lot of like apocalypticism of end times being uh, taking place here between the settlers and the savage Indians. So it's it's really weird. It was fashionable at a time, you know, for every plantation to have some mounds, and because that's what that's what they're getting at. And it was he was really trying to, you know, build the myths for what southern society was because it was still it was so new you know if you think about from the first settling you know into the southeast and the civil war i mean it's it's not that long at all Uh, so there was really active myth making to you know create this national identity and a lot of it is built on that that's so crazy man i hadn't like i hadn't thought about that i didn't know that about john haywood either was so was he a confederate like, no, this was way before the Civil War. So this is like 1700s, like uh, yeah, 1700s into to 1830s. Oh, so early, like wow, pre-Civil War. Yeah, like me and Adam went and actually visited his uh, his grave is down here off of uh, off of Antioch Pike, down to the south of town, 
and this, he's just got this little obelisk um, behind this church, you know, on his old land. There's like a Haywood Lane around there too. But yeah, that's John Haywood, and it's it's crazy to see that you know people still reference him for all those giant stories, you know. And you know, he never even wrote that he personally saw any of that stuff. So there's not a lot of credibility to any of it. Um, but he was, you know, really interested in building these these racial myths to to justify the the new civilization. Surfield also discovered where William Grimstead, riding as Jim Brandon, may have gotten his idea for the rebirth of Pan, which also contained racially based theories for the presence of white gods and white mound builders that formed the false basis for North America's ancestral white heritage. So L. Taylor Hansen was this old writer she had a, like an assumed identity that she was a man. She wrote for amazing stories. She also wrote books that like, she wrote a book that was in my home as a child that was like adopted, but she wasn't a Mormon, but was adopted by the Mormons called He Walked the Americas. But she was in all this weird speculative history and all this shit. But she wrote, she, I, I couldn't find it, but I remember reading a, ref, a reference in one of Grimstead's books about her she was in all this weird like ancient artifacts europeans and the americas shit right but she wrote a couple of these articles in amazing stories the same ones that fucking the palmer sh- or the uh the shaver mystery shit is in where she is basically speculating on the existence of a pre-columbian pan cult in america this is where jim brandon got this fucking idea dude yeah how did you you just found that because of the reference to that and then you like traced it back i just got i got i got turned on back to her because you know like i said like i remember her book in my home and stuff and i'm like looking for it like yelling at my dad so i got turned back on to her and i just looked at like a, a bibliography stuff of like every article she ever wrote and saw these titles and then just went back in these amazing stories and found these and she's talking about a pre-columbian pan cult in america and i know grimstead was aware of her because he referenced her in one of those books so i'm sure this is where he got that idea was there an older society here before the native americans a white atlantis the occult historians of the confederacy would have us believe as much to be true And I think that many of the ancient aliens theorists would also have us believe the same, that these barbaric and uncivilized people could not have created any form of advanced technology. But no doubt, the ancient people and cultures around this planet have each in their own right developed their own technologies and forged their own relationships with nature and the unknown. And these relationships of understanding and advancement manifested in the form of occult technologies. Folk magic is a major undercurrent in this mystery because it's such a major part of this place. The Penny Royal and Kentucky in general is a place where paganism is suppressed and demonized, and especially here in Pulaski County. If it has horns, it's the devil, Dan Dutton is fond of saying. I think that's what surprised me so much when we discovered how large the pagan community is here on the Penny Royal. And there are a lot of old church Christians that still practice folk magic, more often referred to as granny magic. 
Matthew Bird has had numerous encounters with folk magic and granny magic and offered up some stories from his family folklore for us. Here's kind of my background. You have the first magical spell I ever did was I had, and this is about mm, seven years old, I had on my left hand, my pointer finger, I had two warts almost side by side. And my grandmother says, hey, what we're going to do is I'm going to buy those warts from you. And I'm like, okay. And so she gives me two nickels and she splits open a potato and she says, now rub these ends of the potatoes on each of the warts. And so I did so. And she says, now put the nickels inside the potato halves. And I had 10 cents. I was kind of upset that I was having to give away the money that she just gave me. But I did as she asked. And then she told me, now go bury those. And so I went to go bury my nickel potatoes. And I covered it up and I came back and I said, now what? And she says, wait. And what happened after that is both of my warts went away and my grandmother who bought my warts, got two warts on her hand, on the left hand. <laughs> so wild. Dude, this is, dude, this is so, man, listen, I, my dad, my dad used to talk about going to what he called witch, a uh, witch doctor, like, which mm-hmm. is like, uh, but like, it was just an old dude in a cabin to yep. get rid of his warts. Like, Absolutely. Um, God, this is crazy. That's and you're seeing a very big resurgence now because of the internet, um, and people are actually going on YouTube and talking about um, folk magic, granny magic, uh, mountain magic. This was stuff that you know my great aunts and my grandmothers were doing, and nobody blinked an eye at it. Um, my grandmother had on the top shelf she had all of these mason jars and swirling around these mason jars were the nastiest things you could imagine yellow root and just all this stuff and she would be like don't bother any of that stuff and i would i mean you could look at it you're like no i'm not getting into that that's not appealing to me whatsoever she they were just home remedies that she would make my dad came up from florida one time and he had he was deathly ill when he got there and she got some of that one of those mason jars gave it to him told him to drink half of it and go to bed the the man slept like a day and a half he got up she says drink the other half he drank the other half went back to bed when he got up he felt fine he was fit as a fiddle that's just so wild man um I didn't, see, see, you've, you've now said something too that uh, that I hadn't even thought about. We've been so, you know, neither one of the, not neither Darian nor I are, you know, magical practitioners, right? And, and honestly, for me at least, this whole mystery and like researching all this has really been my, you know, you know, I, like I said, I played White Wolf, you know, I played Mage, The Ascension, you know, but even when I was playing those role playing games and dabbling and researching, you know, like every kid in the 90s and probably in the 80s and 90s uh, but definitely once 
the internet rolled around in the you know mid '90s to late '90s, um, right. I was able to look up the Necronomicon, not the real one, but it, you know, I'm just oh, saying, yeah. you know, it was like, oh my God, I can find uh, Ritual to Cthulhu, you know, and and so right. you know, a lot of that stuff was bullshit, but like that was about as deep as magic went for me was to to sort of like flirt with those esoteric websites. But now that we've gotten into this whole mystery, and, and which we really didn't expect to even find our, you know, to, we didn't think it, to find all this stuff in Somerset in particular was just weird, right? And so, so I have, I don't really have any background in magic. The more people that we've talked to, and the more people that we've interviewed, and the more people that have interviewed us, um, I was re- recently talking to um, Timothy Renner interviewed me for his Strange Familiars uh, podcast, yeah. and. Um, he said that he used to dabble in magic, but ultimately he decided what worked for him was folk magic, and really Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, and so he was like, you know, I don't try to do anything fancy. He's like, I just use the folk magic to kind of help out in certain little ways. And he was like, right. you know, I'm not serious about it, but it works enough when I need it to work. And I thought that was really interesting, and you missing that, I, I've never even thought to, you know, we're watching all these videos, and, you know, I have all these, you know, Kenneth Grant books, and some, some deep magic books that I'm reading, but I haven't even thought to look at the resurgence of folk magic. So, talking about White Wolf, um, when you're talking about, like, Mage the Ascension, um, that is your high magic. That's your ritual magic. That's your Crowley. That's your um, that's your Egyptian gods. That's you know your ritualized high magic. Um, you also would have within that your hedge magic, which is your low magic, your folk magic, and that is. I would even say chaos magic is a lot like that. It's it's just real. Uh, simple magical practice. I mean, it's it's simple, it's easy, it's it's will basically. What's crazy about this area, um, and this is something that Eric and I are starting to talk about on the forum, is um, he was talking about his memos and what they did. Um, so my aunt Beulah, God rest her soul, um, she had the gift. She. Uh, was one of those that um, she knew the weather when we were having our first kid. She knew that she was pregnant before she did. And she could tell, she could just look at you and know what you're having. She would, she was just, she knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And if she wanted to know the answer to something, she would flip through the Bible and she would pick a page and she would find the answer where she opened the Bible because that was, I guess, the Lord speaking through her. Um, but my point on that is, especially here in this area, if you are a God-fearing person, if you are a very religious person, um, divination, um, herbalism, all this is considered gifts of God. But if you are not in the spiritual community, um, you're not going to church, 
and stuff, then you're doing the work of the devil. And it's the exact same thing that you're doing either way. That's... Whether you're reading tarot cards, whether you're um, reading playing cards, whether you're opening Bibles for the answers, it's the same thing, man. Every day, I keep thinking, like, is it going to stop at some point? Is the weirdness going to dry up, right? But I don't think so, because the more that I the more that I engage with this, the more that it just... It's just, again, what we were talking about, it's feedback loops. You know, it's just so much information theory and feedback loops. And, and we call it second-order cybernetics, but really, it's it, second-order cybernetics is just the study of, of systems and how you control systems and feedback and that's really what magical systems are right right and so so call it whatever you want but we're all talking about the same thing we're all sort of connecting in this web work in this really fascinating way and it is all about information i think the internet is making magic move quicker between people you know it's faster than ever you know like it's just it's just amazing. Like part of that's why I think part of the phenomena has to be information based, right? And if you reduce reality down to just information, not matter and energy, but really just information, then that's what's constantly happening. We're constantly manipulating reality by interacting with information because once you observe information, there's an effect, and the system observes you observing that effect, and 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 that's just how reality is, and 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 so that's what magic is, and and that's why I think this intention and this focusing of will, even in folk magic, it's almost like folk magic is one of the purest forms of interacting with reality, because the people practicing folk magic aren't. There's no filter between them and reality. They simply believe and observe an action. They don't need ritual. They don't need ceremony. They don't need drugs or sex to get them into an interface. They're already interfacing with it because there's nothing between them and the information, right? Have you ever thought that, um, especially in this area, because people are more nature-based anyway, a lot of farmers, a lot of, you know, people working in the coal mines, all the woods around here, everybody's, you know, all the hunters, that, that is why we can bypass all of that. We don't need to make those connections because, like you said, we are living those connections every day. I think, I mean, you take it back to, and even in England, you know, and you think of like Irish tribes or in Ireland, you know, just anyone, anyone, just anyone that's close to the land and anyone that's not removed from reality by synthetic materialistic things. Right. I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true, man. Because because sometimes I think the artifice of the magical interface, you know, of, of, of the ritualism or the objects or the the, the pageantry, you know, especially with like the um, ceremonial magic that Crowley or definitely Kenneth Grant, you know, I mean, I've read some of the, his rituals where they built, a, you know, a chthonic cavern with columns, you know, and it took weeks to construct it 
and they went through all of these like you know it cost a lot of money and they built basically a film set so that when they all took drugs and did the ritual it was easier to believe in that reality right it's mage the ascension i mean it's literally absolutely the people that made that game it's like your foci and all these things that you use they they increase the chance of success because they increase your belief in that paradigm and that's really what you're talking about are these these warring paradigms and if there's too much technology it's harder to practice folk magic but easier to practice technological magic you know um, which is, I think, is a real thing. I think, you know, a lot of this quantum, you know, the, the, the quantum technologies that we're seeing, we might as well call they're not magical. I don't mean to say they're magic, but they are magic in a sense because it's like, you know, they're harnessing the power of entanglement. They're harnessing the power of, you know, synchronicity and, 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 and this unseen way that's unfathomable to humans, the way that reality works. What we're going to see is once these AI start using, they're probably, it's already that way, they're able to see connections and patterns and exploit those patterns because they're so entwined with the information that's underlying reality. I'm Dara Mason. Um, I'm a podcaster. I, I run the podcast Spirit Box. I, but I suppose... First and foremost, really, um, I'm a photographer and a storyteller. I guess an amateur folklorist as well. My photography, uh, well, I was a travel and documentary photographer for many years, and that took me all over uh, Southeast Asia, India, the Balkans. And um, I was lucky enough that I was able to kind of shoot a lot of subjects that I was interested in. They all tended to cluster around kind of the, the esoteric and the, the, the occult to some degree. But it, was, it's, it allowed me to kind of explore those areas with my camera and the camera is a great door opener as well you know a, a gory sadhus allowed me to photograph some of their rituals and all kinds of interesting stuff and it's an interesting thing looking back and i'm sure you found this as well and you kind of in your your own journey is that you start to kind of query the whole kind of wonder what direction time is going in <laughs> you know from from all the kind of experiences that you know what happened 20 years ago starts to make sense because of recent experiences that kind of thing you know like uh, um so yeah I do, I do practice um magic not to a particular high level um but it's it's a daily practice for me um that includes devotionals yeah and a certain amount of kind of i suppose you would say kind of um folk magic is is probably where i naturally lean towards i i think that's become more prevalent for me from my experiences and kind of what speaks to me it's a, it's a very interesting thing and that, that that particular kind of marriage where seemingly opposites that shouldn't kind of coexist quite comfortably coexist is is quite a uh, it's you see it's quite a prevalent thing in, in 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 folk magic around the world you know you'll see the use of saints in in say a number of different traditions in, in the african desperia and 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 um in 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 brazilian folk magic they 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 co co coexist quite comfortably and i think that's got a lot to do with the fact that folk magic really focuses on what works you know and takes bits from here and there and kind of pulls it all together you know you get things like like particularly use the use of charms so you will have healers that will specialize in certain areas you know like they specialize in the throat specialize in the eye or, or whatever and they'll they'll use a charm that they received from like a 
you know, what might be documented as a spirit familiar, you know, or indeed as, as, as a fairy. They would receive this charm, and that charm would have words in it that are directly taken out of a, a Christian context, you know, and, and they are used to heal. And these charms tend to be kind of handed down. Not just in family lines, they, they kind of are handed down to the successor, however that is, that's articulated and defined. But again, they, they come from like a, a, a spirit source that is of um, ambiguous background or, or, you know, of an ambiguous nature and uh, will yet still be able to kind of fit in both these worlds. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of folk magic is around hedging your bets as well, you know. From the folk magic I'm describing versus chaos magic, the difference I would see is, and I don't mean to do any disservice to, to either, is chaos magic tends to work on the basis of kind of what I as an individual am testing, right? So it's, I'm the source point. Um, I might decide, you know, like famously in the Invisibles, Grant Morrison's, you know, there's the, like summoning John Lennon and praying to John Lennon and all that kind of stuff. The difference for some of the folk magic stuff is it's the source of it, particularly with these charms and cunning women, like uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the history of cunning women, it starts externally. So it is a, a spirit of an intelligence makes contact with the individual, right? And that, that could be the, the starting point. Not always the case, but certainly if you look at like the documentation of say Scottish witch trials, they talk about the, the, these healing, the, the cunning women and, and, and healers that were interviewed under duress and tortured in some cases, quite famously in quite a large volume. What they relayed to their, their inquisitors was interpreted as being it's a demon, you know, it's, and that's pretty much the kind of the, the, that 16th century church view of things. But how they described these um, spirits that they were interacting with was very much in the sense of kind of like fairy. Uh, and, I, and I use the fairy in, the, in that word in the broadest sense. We're still suffering from the whole the Victorian slash Disney interpretation of fairies. You know, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's going to take a long time to undo the damage of that. <laughs> Something that we should also consider is that folk magic itself is a type of technology used to contact non-human intelligences entities and interior information structures, i.e. our constructing consciousness. When we use Ouija boards for divination, we're using magical folk technology. When we actively attempt to channel or engage in seances, we're using magical folk technologies. I would even argue that the Estes method, though a recent development, is a magical folk technology. Spirit boxes, too. Technology doesn't exclude folk. And technology is more than just wires, transistors, chips, circuits, and screens. Non-circuitry technology exists as well. And I think we do a disservice when we regard occult and magical tools and techniques as non-technological. Whatever is communicating with all of us, whatever intelligences or yet-to-be-understood forces are interacting with us through this phenomena, be they gods or aliens, fairies, ghosts, or disincarnate cybernetic information structures, whatever it is, can be interfaced with via these folk technologies. I had a friend of mine who, uh, Elise, and she designed a tarot deck called the Blood and Ink Tarot Deck. And as she sold them and sent them to her customers, those customers started randomly receiving books, right? And they were like 
like the same two bucks started arriving to people randomly, you know? And one of them was called um, Meeting the Other Crowd by Eddie Lenahan, which I have a copy of the book anyway, which, which I purchased a number of years ago, which is a the recounting of... Eddie Lenahan is a Shanachie, and a Shanachie is an Irish word for kind of an old storyteller, right? And he has, has accumulated and catalogued thousands of, of fairy tales from the area he is from and where he lives in, um, in County Clare in, in the west of Ireland. Also the premier karst landscape of, of Ireland, right? Biggest cave complexes, the Burren is, is this area. He documents uh, all these different stories and these kind of warnings with the other crowd, but he's, he's a performer, he's a, he's, a, he's a performance artist as well, right? He kind of, you know, he, he lives the stories as he tells them. He used to be on our TV when we were kids in Ireland, right? But in there he talks about kind of like, uh, one interesting thing he said in the book, and I, I'm trying to recount from memory, but he says, the fairies need us for to, do, to go about their business whatever their business is right but they need us for something um that we have to be part of their own ritual behavior whatever it is so this happens in in the way of like the stories of human women being taken to be midwives for for fairies giving birth um, for sustenance for their for their babies the changelings right all these things require human interaction for some reason we don't know exactly what it is right um but you know these things are are they're, they, they're dangerous, you know they they have bad outcomes for people, and a lot of a lot of times, you know and and it, it's it's an interesting thing in that when we when we talk about kind of the relationship with with fairy, and and but what they expect from us, and we we get a sense of that through the folklore, and through say some of the kind of the the more modern living traditions like the um, Dr. Maria Vojvod's work in Eastern Serbia, where she's interviewing people who are, are living fairy seers who are communicating with their quote-unquote sisters. They've, they have a very strict view of what is good behaviour and what's not, you know, um, and will indeed they will punish people for deviating from that. You know, there, there are like, um, you know, the hatred of lying, you know, that kind of thing. They have very strong reaction to lying and I, I and you get a lot of these kind of moral warnings in, in in folklore you know like most irish fairy stories can be broken down into kind of like the protagonist gets a warning not to do the thing it will anger the fairies they meet the fairies they do the thing some shit happens right? bad shit happens right it's and it's like it's it's simple it's a, you know it's a fable it's it's like aesop's fable it's there's a there's a message there right don't be an idiot <laughs> don't don't do the shit you're not supposed to do right you know it, it, it's 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 planted in there in, in in all of it and i always thought that that was kind of a folkloric message and that was kind of society playing out the constraints that it expects in its contracts with each other you know you don't rob your neighbor's milk you know like you you, you look for an exchange you know you you you, you community is a series of, of interlinking you know um points that that they rely on each other they're all connected to each other they rely on each other so you you don't take from your neighbor you don't treat your neighbor unjustly and all that kind of stuff right so the fairies have a very strict moral code that that, that, that plays out in the stories now it's hard to tell if that's real 
as aware of, of kind of from actual kind of experiences people have or indeed is it just the society telling the individual through its folklore how to behave Kiki Dombrowski shared her thoughts with us regarding the mystery and magic of the Fae. I, I've been, you know, it, it's interesting because I thought about the Fae and the Fae for me were actually a gateway. They were a gateway for me to kind of get involved with uh, magic and witchcraft and mythology and visiting places that might be connected to them. And, uh, you know, I don't, I think there's something to it you know I, I don't know you know when we talk about fairies I think that it's really you know they, they refer to it as being sort of like this this sort of like a tradition that's in Europe but if we if we kind of like span out a little bit I guess you could think of most cultures believe that there are sort of entities or spirits from other realms that that can interact with us you know I think that that even in 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 America, there there were native tribes that believed that there were spirits or, or nature spirits or, you know, um, sort of these elemental forces that that took shape. And they seem to, to you know, they're they're not all Tinkerbell, right? Like like when we when we hear the word fairy, you know, maybe, and that's interesting too because that goes right back. Tinkerbell goes right back to the roadside attraction. So we think of Tinkerbell the roadside attraction form of a fairy. But when we look into maybe what they really are, it's this really, it's a really incredible study. And there are people who passionately study the the lore and the magic and the mythology behind the fae, and they're dedicated to it. And I think personally me, I, I've always been drawn to it. And maybe it's because I've always had a vivid imagination. And and even as a, as a young person, I was having these sort of strange otherworldly encounters. Um, you know, I had vivid dreams of gray aliens. I had um, past life thoughts that would go through my head when I was a kid. And um, I had imaginary friends. And one was, uh, you know, the man that lived in the tree. And I think, I wonder if that was like some sort of like encounter with the Fae. And I've had other Fae encounters as well. And, you know, some people will say too, and maybe kind of like an egregore where they are able to transform or take shape in how you expect them to look. I mean, that's, or, or you know, like they take the form of, of, of what you are looking for, right? Like they're they're able to shape shift. And, and, and that goes into that idea of, of animals even being tied to uh, this sort of like mystical otherworldly creature or, or being. They're shapeshifters they're, and they can encounter with us. But I think the interesting thing is too, is that in the modern world, after we've paved paradise and put up a parking lot, they're just not, we're not as close to them as we used to be. We're not as connected. And I think that's where people, you know, one, I think is so important about visiting places that you think are sacred or magical because, you know, or on water, like 
like where you're moving, you know, because maybe that will give you the ever so slight better chance of having that sort of like profound interaction, you know, but then again, we read this book and this guy was in his, his apartment in Edinburgh and he had that interaction. I, I don't know. Maybe you just have to be in the right place at the right time, but I'm, I'm really enchanted by it. I, I just, I'm enchanted by it. And, 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 and maybe I'm enchanted by it too, because, you know, we love the idea of, of having sort of like these abilities that, that they have, this magic, this eternal, you know, beauty or, or capability to do things that we just can't do in our human bodies. So it's just really, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And, and I don't know, I remember learning about them too. This is funny. I learned about them through pop culture. You know, uh, Tori Amos, she used to thank the fairies in her album. So like, if you get under the pink and you look at like the thank you list at the end of her album, she says, and thank you to the fairies. So I was like, wow, I want to thank the fairies. <laughs> like, what is it that we're really interacting with? What is it that we're communicating with? What, what is the thing that's sending these messages to us or orchestrating or arranging configurations of people and events? to tell us something that we don't yet understand. Pennyroyal has always been about the magic and mystery of place. We say that over and over again. Are we interacting with an entity or an intelligence bound to the Pennyroyal? That's what I'm beginning to wonder. Is it a spirit of place that's bound to Pulaski County, Kentucky? Maybe that's what people that settled here have been interacting with for centuries. And you've got to wonder if these entities aren't involved in local politics. Do they influence individuals in the community, visit them in dreams, give them auspicious nudges to provide providence when they're really just executing a plan that we mere mortals don't understand? And then the question is, why does it have to be adversarial? Why, if something else exists, if there's another intelligence out there, outside of us, something external, why do we fear that it will harm us? Why is it war first? But what if these entities, these external intelligences, what if they're just exploring the universe and reality the same way we are, and we just keep bumping up against each other? So, so many of our stories are full of this stuff. Full of it, you know? And like, look at things like the Pied Piper of Hamlet. You know, that story is, is remarkable, right? So towns infested with, with rats. I, you know, I'm not going to bore anybody too much, but recount. I'll give you my, my 25-minute version of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. We'll wrap it up quite quickly. Like, you have the Pied Piper of Hamlin comes to help the villagers of the, t- the town of Hamlin, you know, who are overrun with rats. And he uses his music to sing the rats away. So it's, he uses music for mastery over animals. To, to create a spell to remove them then he's betrayed he, you know he the, the 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 humans don't come through on their side of the deal and he punishes them in the most excruciatingly horrific way and uses the same music to sing their children away and they're bewitched and follow him and he leads them into a mountain and there's one child following who is lame he's, he's uh, injured his leg and he can't keep up with the rest of them and he sees the mountain open and the children go in and the mountain close behind them you know, and and it's like, fucking unpack that, the theft of children on mass, like walking into the mountain, the use of music to bewitch, this layer and layer and layer of it. 
the interesting thing about like again the the, the use of, of of music is you have this narrative in in Irish rural traditions of say master pipers play play the Ilham pipes they, they'll talk about like they you get the idea of like they hype themselves up to a degree right it's very competitive but they'll talk about certain pipers where Abducted, or they fell asleep on a fairy wrath, and they went to fairyland. And they came back with these these beautiful airs, and they they'll, they'll attribute them to the to the fairies. You know, I heard this music in in fairyland. Now the motif comes up again and again. The exact same motif exists in in eastern Serbia. You know that the the fairies are 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 sung down by the fairy series piece in Serbia. The fairies like request their interest is in is in young male pipemen. And there's always a weird sexual thing in it as well. Like there's, there, there, there seems to be this, 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 there's definitely this kind of interest in in, in human reproduction, um, from a curious level down to a kind of an, an explicit level that seems to come up again and again. So y- you have these motifs that come up in totally different areas of the world repeatedly, and the use of of music to enchant, to summon. And, and the gifts that come with the abduction, that one returns from the abduction with these this odd set of, of gifts. It's the same in jinn lore. Jinn are famous for inspiring poet poetic ability, you know? So it's very strange. So yeah, like when we overdevelop, we create, you know, that veil where we, you know, are, are sort of like longing for the veil to be thin, where we're able to be in a space where we have one foot in this world and one foot in the other, that that sort of like thickens. Um, there are people out there that, that like put out really amazing theories where, you know, we live in such a transitory, wild time where that veil between our world and the other is 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 tearing or disappearing. And it doesn't even matter where you are. You're going to have, it's almost like, yeah, it makes me think of, 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 of Ghostbusters when they they turn the that machine off and all the ghosts go free. Like that's almost what it makes me think of is, is you know, are we living in a time where all of a sudden we are able to have these interactions again and how are we going to handle that? And, and that's something that's important too is that, you know, when we talk about the Fae or, you know, whatever this, this sort of like elemental encounter is, it's not necessarily all white light and blessings. It's not always happy. A lot of the stories of these encounters are dark and they're scary and they're not good for humans. You know, I mean, there were all these ways to protect yourself against having an encounter with them. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind too. I personally, I I, I do it and, and I know a lot of people do that where they romanticize it and they want it to be sort of this like, you know, almost like a young adult fantasy encounter where you're taken away to this beautiful world of apples and, you know, and, and and foxes and 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 fairies and, and and it's blissful but but maybe it's not always like that you have to be aware of of the tricksters and um yeah maybe things that don't have your best interests in favor going back to my kind of original point we're at a place now where all these strange things are happening that there's emergence of, of sensitivity there's an emergence of experience and i think that's manifesting more and I think that's why these things are starting to happen. You know, we're starting to uncover more. The veil is 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 thinning. That's a hugely bombastic statement to make, but um, that's my interpretation. 
you know, um, and it's it's certainly been the case for me. I'll tell you I, what I think is happening, and I'll try not to sound like an idiot with this theory, but it's going to be challenging, so bear with me. But 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 what I think it is is we've gone through the process of changing our view to monotheism, developing our intellect, and then going through the Enlightenment, right, where we've slowly kind of been removing mystery from our experience. And equally, mystery has been retreating away from us at the same time. Now we're, I think we're getting to a period in, in human development where actually our ability to perceive our, our sensitivity to mystery is starting to return and that's why I think these things are happening and they're starting to get momentum and they're starting to be a network of people like myself yourself our friend Mana our friend Marco who are experiencing different pieces of the puzzle and when we have conversations like this we are able to translate the astonishment and you get those things of like, well, this happened, and you know, you're like, well, holy fuck, well, that happened to me too, you know. And, and you get that happens all the time now, you know. Uh, and and like, there's some extraordinary things, really extraordinary things. I think it's also worth pointing out that often the beings we encounter have elemental qualities. They appear to us as beings of air, earth, fire, and water each in their own right possessing qualities of their respective substance. They are, in this essence, archetypes that seem to have been with us for millennia. UFOs, which are beings of air, devils and demons that are beings of fire, the Darrow and the Tarot and the Tommyknockers that are beings of earth, mermaids and the Loch Ness Monster that are beings of water. Are the occupants of flying saucers actually aliens from another planet somewhere out there in space? Or are they the Fae or the Tuatadetanain? Or maybe even, as Josh Kutchin postulates, maybe they're from the land of the dead. Whoever whatever is flying those saucers, they seem to be heavily active in Kentucky. And there's no denying that there's a concentration on the Pennyroyal of visitations, communications, and arrivals, and it all seems to be building towards something. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit PennyRoyalPodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.